15. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking you to please open up your word to us today, Lord. Help us to um, see the call that you have on our lives, Lord, a call that is impossible without your anointing, without your uh, empowering. Lord, I would ask that you would please fill me afresh with your spirit, Lord, that, um, that you would use me to bring forth your word and your word would bear fruit for your glory. God, uh, please, Lord, help us to receive this word and walk in it by your power. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I, too, want to thank the veterans for all that you have done, are doing, maybe. Um, you know, when I think of this uh, message, I, I really struggled because I didn't have an introduction, and then the Lord said, well, Dan, it's just Veterans Day. Isn't that what it's about in many ways, where the strong go and defend and protect the weak, those that can't? And really, that's a picture of uh, what... Paul is calling us to, because we live in a world where it's the exact opposite, isn't it? It's a world where the strong take advantage of the weak. You know, everybody is looking for uh, themselves to uh, get one foot up on everything. And, and the best way to describe it is, is I was thinking about this, and it's like in football. Uh, if you're uh, on offense and you notice one of the defensive players gets hurt, what does the offense generally do the very next play? Go after the weak spot. Go after the one that was just taken out. And that's kind of the world, isn't it? It's all about being the top dog and stepping on whoever you have to and uh, getting the, you know, uh, taking the weak and using them for your advantage. Twisting minds, doing whatever it takes. And what God is calling us as believers to do is that we're not to victimize the weak but we are obligated, according to God's word, to help the weak. So contrary to the world that we live in. And um, my point today is this, that sacrificial living with the weak or the lost in mind is Christ-like. And it brings glory to God. But it's so counterintuitive, it's so counter-world, and that's pretty typically the, the gospel. It's so counter what this world would say to do to be successful, to be happy. And um, when we look at it, we see that truly strong Christians are willing to limit their freedoms to care for and love the weaker. Take a look at God's word. First verse that we read today, again. We who are strong, I like that we, so Paul is including himself in that. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That is the problem, isn't it? That's the challenge. We can bear with, but you're talking about living completely different than what we're told we should live by the world. And then in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he's talking about us caring and, and supporting each other. That word bear in chapter 15, verse 1, means this. It doesn't mean to merely tolerate and be patient with, you know, because I think that's where I fall short a lot of times. Well, I'm bearing with them. I'm tolerating them. You know, I'm being, trying to be patient with them. You know, and what it is is it's really calling us to be purposefully, generously, and cheerfully helping the weak in order to carry their loads. That's a little different, isn't it? It's kind of this mentality of, of that I struggle with is that, yeah, okay, I'll be patient, but just kind of, I got to do, I got to move on. I got to uh, not take care of them as much as, listen, I, okay, fine. And God's word is really calling us to care for them, to lift them up, to support the weak. And when we're talking about weak here, we're obviously talking in context with chapter 14, those who have convictions that limit their freedoms in Christ. But I don't think it just stops there. I think it goes beyond that, just as we, did la we talked about last week, that this call for the weak and the strong to be uh, patient with each other, to uh, do these things, uh, to, to be careful not to put a stumbling block in front of someone else. I said, it's not just for the strong to not put a stumbling block in front of the weak. It's also that the weak don't put a stumbling block in front of the strong. So this is a, a message that comes together and, and, and says, you know what, it's more than just weak convictions, strong convictions. It's broader than that. So we have to look at this as, as kind of a, a whole picture of what God is calling us to be as his people to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but you'll see also uh, to the world around us. What we see is that what he's calling us to is that in order to live like this section of Scripture is calling us to not please ourselves, but to bear with, an obligation to bear with the, those who are weak, we have to deny ourselves. We have to uh, come against self-interest, and we don't like that. I don't like that. Our, we, we have this self-preservation uh, in us that's just born in us, and we kind of want to look out just for us. And, you know, our family, okay. But, you know, beyond that, we kind of limit what we're really willing to suffer for, to sacrifice for. And yet Scripture is calling us to that, saying, you know what? You must deny yourself interest, Dan. Because real Christian freedom means inconvenience. That's what it means. It means inconvenience. It means that we're not going to live for ourselves, but for others. Real, real Christian freedom means inconvenience. And that's what God is calling us to for the glory of the gospel. That we would please others for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity, for the sake of God's glory. That's not peace at all costs. You know, there's times where we realize that people will want us to compromise the gospel, and he's not talking about that. But most of the times, that's not the case. Um, we want to be right, and we want to prove that they're wrong, or we don't want to be inconvenienced. I, you know, that's what happens. I can think of my next-door neighbor, who, in the beginning of spring, said, Hey, Dan. Uh, listen, I was just wondering, I noticed you have car ramps. And I said, yep. He goes, listen, halfway through summer, would you mind 
uh, if I came over and borrowed those so I can sharpen the blades on my mower? And I said, yes, that'd be fine. In my heart, I didn't. I thought, oh, no, I don't want it. That's going to be such a problem in so many ways. You know, I didn't want to be inconvenienced was the bottom line. That's the bottom line. I just didn't want to be inconvenienced. And what I see here is that God saying, you know what, Dan, I've called you to be inconvenienced as a believer, to live in a way that is contrary to the world in such a manner that you are going to uh, be obligated to the weak, to the lost in particular, as I see here, because what we see is that he's talking about pleasing the weak brother. How do we do that? How do we please the weak brother? How do we help them in their weakness? Well, some of the things that we can do or we can encourage them. We read this in chapter 14, that we are to encourage one another in the faith, to build each other up. So we need to encourage those who are weak in the faith, who are struggling, and we need to build them up. We also look at it and say that we're called to edify them and, and strengthen them. You know, have a conversation maybe about those areas that they struggle with, with regards to convictions. But at the bottom line is, is we love them and we accept them. And that's what Scripture is calling us to. But what about the lost? What about the lost? Because I think this section of Scripture also addresses the lost, and I'll show you in a minute, because he's talking about the goal of pleasing the lost, living for others. And what we see is that this pleasing the lost is eternally focused. It's a little different. Take a look at God's word, verse 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor. His neighbor is different than our brother or sister. Now there's a shift here. It's broader than just the body of Christ, I believe. Talking about the neighbor. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So there's a purpose. We're going to please them for his good, for our neighbor's good, to build him up. Okay? And then look at how it moves from that. It goes right into, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what we see here is that he's talking about pleasing our neighbors, pleasing maybe those who are lost, but they're not the ones that dictate how we do that. Because I don't know about you, but I've run into people that have decided how I'm going to help them. How about you? You say, "Uh, listen, uh, I need help, and this is what you're going to do. And you just, what? And and I find, okay, I'm going to say this. I find this interesting, that the people that always expect you to help them seldom are available when you need them to help you, right? I have a couple friends like that. And what happens over time is that you just kind of stop helping them because, you know, listen, you just want to use me, and you don't really care about our friendship in a sense of, listen, let's help each other. And so what occurs here is that we see this picture of uh, serving someone, pleasing our neighbor, but it's not as they dictate. It's not as they dictate, but rather how God would dictate us helping them. And the goal is a little different when I look at it than helping our brothers and sisters in Christ because the goal here is for his good. I'm going to uh, not live for myself, but I'm going to serve my neighbor for his good And then it shows me the example of Christ for his good 
I believe here is talking about seeking their salvation, to do what you can to present the gospel to them, to present a living, breathing example of Christ's love for the lost, and to uh, be that hand that they need, to be helping them, to be lifting them up for the sake of the gospel, for the hope of maybe sharing the gospel. But even if that opportunity doesn't come about, you're still being an example of Christ's love. And I see that as a picture of what's happening here. The focus is not on their comfort or their pleasure, doing what they want, but rather, how could I reflect the gospel, Christ's love for them as my neighbor in such a way that I could uh, live to, to help them, to please them, but my goal is that they might come to know Christ. You see the difference? As our brothers and sisters, we know that they are, are right with God. And so we want to encourage them, build them up in their faith, help them in their weakness, do those things that we can serve them in, in growing in their faith. And here we say, you know what, I want to come along this neighbor. I want to do what, what I can to honor God in this relationship, to live in a way that I put, I'm inconvenienced. I'm inconvenienced. I put them ahead of myself because of their need spiritually to come to know Christ. And that's the picture that I see in this section of Scripture. It is for their good. And then you, you see this beautiful transition. Paul makes this statement. And then he goes into Christ's example. He just, he just goes right into it. He moves right in. He says, oh, by the way, you know, let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. So he's, he's saying, it's like this. It's like Christ didn't please himself, uh, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And we see that Jesus is our example in this whole section of Scripture. Christ is our example because Jesus sacrificed himself to bring about your ultimate good, which was the salvation. Jesus put on flesh. We talked about this a little bit last week, is that you know he put on flesh and came, gave up some of his uh, freedoms and rights as the living God. It says here how Christ himself came, sacrificed himself for our ultimate good, for our salvation, for your salvation, for my salvation. Jesus came, and if I want to use the term so far that I've used here, Jesus inconvenienced himself for us, for our good, our ultimate good. We see that he willingly denied himself. He willingly denied himself and suffered for the benefit of, of the weak, us. That's what Jesus did. He did something great for us. He put aside the glories of heaven. He took upon himself flesh. He came and was inconvenienced and suffered greatly for us. And the call here is the same call that was in the last chapter in that Jesus did all these things that are so great and wonderful for us, could we not find a place in our hearts to do the lesser in order to serve our brothers and sisters or even the lost? I, I just have to con confess, I have to had 
I've had to repent because of this. Because I think, you know what? I just really don't like being inconvenienced for really any reason. I'm very self-centered. It's amazing to me how self-centered I am. And just to say, you know what, God? I've got to put this in perspective that you did this great thing for me. And I'm not trying to pay him back because that's not what grace is about. But to look at that and say, you're my example, Jesus. And I want to be like you. So help me live like this. Because I, I, this is so contrary to my flesh. This is so contrary to what the world says. So help me. Do this work in me. Because we will never deny ourselves. We will never love sacrificially if we don't have absolute certainty of a future hope in Christ that is revealed in Scripture. That's part of how we can do this by God's grace. And the reason I say that is because that's what the verse says. Take a look at the next verse in Romans chapter 15, 4. So again, just continue with the thought pattern. of he, He's saying, this is what I've called you to live like. Boom. Live for others, not for yourself. And oh, by the way, we have an example. His name is Jesus. And how can we start walking in this? How can we kind of get our, our hearts set? Look at this. He goes right after Jesus' example. He comes in with uh, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So he's paralleling this sacrificial living with an example of Christ and he's saying, and where you get this hope to live like this, where you get the encouragement, where you get the perseverance is you can see in scripture how God is using the word of God to give you hope. That this is not just wasted time or that you're, you're just uh, um, kind of walking, going through the motions, but there's a hope for you. So you don't look now because if you look now, you're inconvenienced. If you look down the road, you see a hope. And so you live for that is what he's saying there. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That every good work includes putting others before yourself. Living in such a manner that it's a sacrificial living for those who are weak and those who are lost. And he's saying all these things, the scripture is written for every good work, which includes all those things that I'm talking about, which includes providing the ramps and possibly even sharpening the blades of your neighbor's riding lawnmower. Okay? And then we look at Romans 8, 24b to 26. Now hope is what is, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit will empower us. And then Psalm 119, verse 15. This is my comfort and my affliction. I use this because we go, affliction? Well, you know, sometimes I find myself really uh, thinking, well, I can't do that because woe is me, right? My great affliction, Dan's great affliction in life. And so I use this, this is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. That your promise gives me life. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, you know what? The scripture teach us certain things. And those things enable us to live a godly life that is Christ-like, that puts others ahead of ourselves. It teaches us who God is. When you look at it, they, they quote 
uh, Psalm 96 or 69 in here. But what does Scripture teach us? It teaches us who our God is. Who is our God? Our God is creator of all things. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything he chooses to do. He created everything we see out of nothing. And he presently holds it all together. Our God is omniscient. He knows all things, everything. Past, present, future, he knows it all. He knows all the options. He knows it all. He knows exactly where he placed you in this world, in this time, next to your neighbors, in this church. He's got a purpose in it all. He is not only omniscient, knowing all things, and he's got a plan in all things. He is sovereign over all things. And you can get frustrated or rejoice in this last election, but the bottom line is you rest in who? God. Is he sovereign or is he not? Or did man thwart his plans? God is sovereign. And then we rest in the fact that our God is omnipresent. He's past, present, future. That's our God. And what happens is we read Scripture and we start understanding who God is in all His glory, in all His greatness. We see Christ in His compassion. We see Christ being inconvenienced. We see Christ in in His humility. We see Jesus for all that He is. And the Scripture teaches us that. It says, you know what, here's your example. Here's your God. So now, desire to imitate Christ. So what Scripture does enable to, to enable us to live this way is it shows us who our God is. It shows us as well. It reveals God's faithfulness, right? We look and we read in Scripture and what do we see? We see that God was always faithful to his people. Times got hard. Times got tough. It was difficult to see how they were going to get out of it. But God always was faithful to his word over and over again. And so we watch God, we read God's word, and God's word shows us, you know what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am faithful. I'm faithful when you're faithless. And so what we see in the pattern of scripture is God working in the lives of his people fulfilling his word. And so we see God in in, in his interaction, not only who he is, but his interaction with his people and how faithful he is. And then we see how God always in his word shows us that he fulfills his promises. He's a God who honors his word over and over again. You see the prophecies, even Psalm 69 that is quoted here. Is talking about Jesus. And so what happens is, is that the scripture lays out for us who our God is, his faithfulness, and how he will always fulfill his promises. And this section of scripture in Romans is saying this. It's saying, and because of what scripture shows us, that enables us, that empowers us to live this way of putting others before ourselves, to live inconveniently, because our focus isn't here. Our focus is in the future, in all the promises that God has made. That if you give a cup of water to someone, God will not forgive, forget it. All those little things, all the promises that God made in his word are for us. And that empowers us to live in a selfless way now. Because we realize it's not about now. My home is not here. I'm visiting. My home is with Jesus. And God will fulfill all his promises that he will take me home. 
put a ring on my finger and a robe on my back, as the prodigal son says. But you know what I'm saying is that those things, the Scripture, as we read it, we see who God is and His promises, and we know that they're sure. And so our hope is not here, it's there. And that empowers us to live differently than the world that we live in, contrary to the way that the world would call us to live. And see, what happens is that when we understand these truths of who God is and His faithfulness and always fulfilling His promises, that affects our attitude. It affects our behavior now because we start seeing life through the lens of the gospel. And we say, you know what? God, I want to live like that. You're calling me to live like that. You can empower me to live like that. God, I desire to live like that, to persevere. You know, I mean, it's easy to, to uh, sharpen the blades once, right? <laughs> but how about every year? How about twice a year? Encourages us to persevere and live in a way that we're not just living to please ourselves. Wow, that, that is so, that is so incredible. So beyond us that it's got to be a work of God. And by God's grace, we are able to live with the long view, with a long view, so that our differences and our convictions, they will not create friction between us they will not cause a brother or sister to fall because we have that long view. I can do what the scripture calls me to do as a strong brother in Christ to bear with the struggles of my weaker brothers and sisters to love a neighbor who doesn't love me. God, you have to do this work in me. I need you to do this work so that the differences that I have, especially between my brothers and sisters, it doesn't divide us. It doesn't cause friction. God is going to take you to work that in me because in the past, maybe all of us would be able to confess, you know what, the differences really have caused conflict in between me and brothers and sisters and, and maybe even caused them to stumble. I don't know. But I'm sure that we would all probably say guilty is charged in many ways. And so what happens is, is that we would be able to live with that long view. And you know what? When I look at that, Something occurs when we can, by God's grace, live like that. Because the scripture tells us what happens. When we, by God's grace, can live with that um, love for each other and that putting others ahead of ourselves, then what happens is that with one voice, with one voice, in spite of our differences, we will glorify God. Take a look at God's word again. Romans 15, 5 through 7. You're just continuing on with the thought. May the God of endurance, this is like Paul's prayer in 5 or 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's saying something happens. He says, you know what? This doesn't mean that you're going to agree on every issue. When it talks about with, uh, 
with one voice glorifying God. It doesn't mean we all agree on things. We don't. This room is filled with people who don't agree with each other on a lot of stuff. It's not talking about agreeing on every issue, but it is talking about this, that we have the same desires, that God has to work in our hearts, the desires to be willing to deny ourselves, the desire that we would accept one another in spite of our differences, to love when loving is hard. He's talking about those things with one voice. And what he's doing is he's saying that this unity that we would have, this unity that would transcend the differences that we have in our, our um, culture, where we grow up, our age differences, our backgrounds, all these things that in the world generally divide people. Instead, the fact that we can come together with this unity Despite our differences, despite our disagreements, we can come together and under the roof of this church, under the banner of Christ, and praise God. What happens is that when we can do that, when we can come together, then what happens is is that God is glorified. This unity transcends all our differences. And the reason it does is because of this. And, And this is why we're here today. This is why with all our diverse backgrounds, I got farmers, I got doctors. Okay, that's diverse. Male, female, that's diverse. College educated and probably some that didn't even graduate high school in here. We're so different. Packer fans, Viking fans. (laughs) Whatever it might be, what we see is that we're gathered under this roof because it's based on our common salvation in Christ. We're brothers and sisters. We have a shared purpose in the gospel. Shared purpose in the gospel. We want to see the lost found. We want to see the weak strengthened. We have a common purpose. And we have a common hope. And our hope is not here. It's in this glorious place called heaven where Jesus is ruling and reigning even now temple is filled with his glory as I prayed this morning that's why we're gathered here with all our crazy differences it's about Jesus it's about Jesus and he brings us together here now and he's the one who will empower us to put others before ourselves to uh, if you're strong in an area to lift up and bear the burdens of the weak to love lost that treat us wrongly it's about the gospel and the thing about it is, is it, it's not just an invisible spiritual unity. If that's all it were, then I think we would fall far short. It's more than just an invisible spiritual unity. It's also a unity that the world can see. If all we are is brothers and sisters and we gather under this roof and that's it, then what happens is, is we can be just like any other organization or group. But if there's a unity that God would would work in us as a body that goes beyond these doors but is part of being under this roof, then what happens is is that the world will see. Take a look at Jesus' prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, just before he went to the cross. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, La Crescent Free. And all those who would believe that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe 
that you have sent me. Wow. That we would be as one. That there would be a unity. There would be a harmony in this body of Christ. A love for each other that is so powerful that the world would see. That the world would see. And the world would see it not just like they're a bunch of really nice people that like to hang out with each other. But you see how it's going to point to the gospel. The truth of the gospel. Because it goes on in 22. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me the gospel. So the world might know. They would see this unity in a body of Christ where everything else in this world is splitting apart at the seams, where everybody is living selfishly, self-focused, to heck with anyone else, where the, the strong are feeding on the weak and they see something completely different in the body of Christ. And it says those people are different. So what they believe in has to be greater than anything I've ever seen. Because look at them. Look at how they love one another. 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's the gospel that we're talking about. That's the joy of what God is calling us to. It doesn't make it easy, but it gives us a purpose. I was talking to a young man this week, and uh, he was saying how he was struggling with his purpose in life. He said, I don't know, you know, what, what, what is the reason, why, why are we living for what we're living for, what, you know? And, I, and as he was talking, I was thinking, and I thought, well, what is my purpose? What is my purpose in life? You know, do I have this great grand purpose that I can lay out in one nice sentence? And I thought, you know, my, really my purpose in life is that people would see me and say, you know what, he's a Christian and the gospel is true. However that works out. That he's a believer. I can see how the way he lives. And you know what? That's different. That must mean that his God is real. That the gospel is true. That Jesus would be glorified in my life. That's kind of my purpose. It's incredible, incredible unity that God is talking about. He's talking about a unity of the heart that is seen. Seen in things like this, like what we just did, worship together. That we gather around and, and we sing praises to our God and some of us don't like the songs because they're too loud or they're not fast enough or rowdy enough, whatever. But we're gathered together under this banner called Jesus and he is worthy of praise and honor and glory. And it's not about us. It's about him. And so people see that unity. They say, look at them. They're gathering together. They're worshiping their God. I pray for the lost that come in here all the time. God, would it bring them here. And, and God, show them the glory of the gospel. Let them see our love for each other. And what we see here is just this, this picture of the unity in our worship together. regardless of what we personally like or don't like, we're gathered together because Jesus is worthy of praise and honor and glory and so we're going to give it to him. And our fellowship, 
when we sit around and we talk and we laugh with each other and at each other, in fun, of course, that they see that. They just, you, you know, I remember one guy told me, um, I forgot what, he, we were talking and, and he's saying, well, do you have a lot of division in your, in your church where, you know, if I walk in, I can see, oh, here's this group of people and they're all the same. And, and I said, no, uh-uh, no, by God's grace, no. It's just not like that. I said, I would, I would challenge you to go in there and pick out those who are more, um, what, well off in social circles. I said, I, I guarantee you, you won't be able to. I'm gonna walk around, look, talk. And I said, that's, that's a testimony of God. So we're just one group of people enjoying life together, delighting in Christ, and walking through this world until we get to our home. And that differences that we have with each other as we fellowship together, as we don't make a big deal out of the differences, that is a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ on the unity that he has worked in this body, in our hearts. And it's not just that part of the external unity that people will see, but they will hear. They will hear the, the gospel that we will brag on our Jesus. We will boast on who he is. We will delight in him. They will hear that. They will hear the, the, the gospel being laid out and how, how we were lost, separated from God with no hope, none. We were sinners separated from God for all eternity. That's who we were. And then Jesus came, took on flesh, put aside all the freedoms and rights of heaven and was inconvenienced and put on flesh and came and lived that perfect sinless life that we can't live. He did it for us. And then he goes to the cross and was punished for our sin. Punished for sin that was not his own. And then rose three days later. And they hear that. That yeah, we're all in the same boat. We're, we're all just broken people living and serving uh, the living God. That's who we are. We're just people with all our different backgrounds, with all our messes, with all of it, but we're one. We're each other. We're brothers and sisters, and we're that because of Christ. And that unity that people would come in and see would be a testimony to Christ. Look at them. Look at them. This is so contrary to the world. You see, unity is not optional behavior for Christians, but rather it is essential so that God would be glorified. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying you've got to love one another. You've got to put others ahead of yourself. Bear up with each other's weaknesses. Have a unity that the world will stand back in awe of. And what will happen is that when this occurs, this will bring glory to God. That's why unity isn't optional in the body of Christ. But unity is not man-made either. It's a gift from God. That's why the unity that we have in this church is because of God, His wonderful, gracious gift. It's another reason to praise Him, amen? And what happens is this. It's something that God does, but we have a responsibility in it too. Grace with blisters. 
That's what Paul's talking about in 14. That's what he's talking about in 15 here, saying it's not simply a work that God does and we all stand back, but we have a responsibility in, in building this unity that God desires, that glorifies his great name. We are to pursue peace, as it says, pursue building up others. We are to pursue the good of others, as it says here in, chat, in verses 1 and 2. So we have a responsibility. We're to pursue those things. We're to not put stumbling blocks in front of our brothers and sisters in regards to chapter 14 of Romans. We are to pray for unity, knowing that unity is a gift from God. And I'll say this right now. This church prays for unity. We pray for it. We pray for it a lot on Sunday morning before the services. Pray for unity. We need to pray that we'd be okay with being inconvenienced for the gospel's sake. I got to say, that's not usually on my prayer list. I don't know about yours, but Lord, please help me willing, be willing to be inconvenienced today, today for the sake of the gospel. That's just not a prayer we really pray a lot, is it? But maybe we should add it to our list that God would use something like that to bring us closer together, to depend upon him, to desire to be imitators of Christ in his unselfish love for others. Jesus, make me like you. And Jesus' life and ministry are the motivations and means for us denying ourselves and serving others. Take a look at God's word again, because it doesn't really matter what I say, right? It's God's word. Look at Mark chapter 10, greatest, one of the greatest sections of scripture in all. Jesus called them to him and said to them, his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Isn't that the world? Isn't that exactly what we're talking about? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. There's the sermon. Memorize those, that, those sections of scripture because that's the sermon. And then in uh, Psalm 119, 36 through 30, 37. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Wow. God's word. Jesus became a servant and accepted us when we were unlovely sinful and lost when we were weak and he loves us today in spite of all our weaknesses in spite of all our frailties so let's imitate Jesus let's be like him let's live sacrificially with the weak and the lost in mind and if by God's grace we're able to do that in a small measure then what will happen is this God will be glorified God will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word that is, there's so few verses, God, but the depth of it is so incredible. God, this is impossible to do in our own strength, but Lord, you would never call us to do something if you wouldn't empower us to do it because that's how great you are, Lord. So I ask that you would help us, God, to live in a way that would truly bring you glory by putting others before ourselves, by bearing the burdens of the weak, 
by desiring the good of the lost around us, Lord, that it would affect the way we live. God, do this work in our hearts, in our lives for your glory. God, that the world would stand back and say, look how they love one another, look at their unity, and that your name would be made much of. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.